He was the man who took over for Moses. You know him as Joshua, but how well do you know him? Well, you're about to meet Joshua as you've never seen him before. Plus, who was Miriam from Migdal, and why should you care? That's the riddle Charlie Dyer will solve for you in his devotional. But before that, we'll enjoy another round of listener questions. A welcome to another jam-packed edition of The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager, seated across from our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. And Charlie, are those, by any chance, suitcases I see being packed and stacked there? Yeah, as Peter, Paul, and Mary said, my bags are packed, I'm ready to go. Uh, We leave for Israel, Lord willing, tomorrow, June 13, and we arrive on the 14th and hit the ground running. Wow, I am jealous, but grateful that you guys are finally going to get back, and we'll look forward to your reports from Israel. Right now, though, a look at current events that have been unfolding this past week in the Middle East. After we recorded last week's program, Yair Lapid did succeed in cobbling together a new government in Israel to replace Netanyahu. So what are the details of this new government and what are its chances for long-term success? Well, it still needs to pass a vote of confidence in the Knesset, and that's likely to happen tomorrow on June 13. Now, up until this past Monday, there was concern that the coalition deal could still collapse. With a one-vote majority, it would only take one conservative member of this uh, coalition to vote against it and bring the entire government down. But the member thought to be on the fence came out in support of the coalition. Uh, The new government will represent, though, a clash of cultures with more dissimilarities than similarities. Compared to the last 12 years, the new government will lean more to the left and be more secular. And yet, in a strange twist, the new prime minister for the first two years, Naftali Bennett, will be the first religiously observant, keep-a-wearing prime minister in Israel's history. The coalition's made up of eight separate parties, and that's the largest number of parties to form a coalition in Israel's history. And yet, for all that, they only control 61 seats in the Knesset, the bare minimum number needed to pass legislation. In terms of how the government's ministries are going to be apportioned, Naftali Bennett will serve for the first two years as prime minister, and then Yair Lapid will take over for the remaining two years. While Bennett is prime minister, Lapid will serve as foreign minister. Uh, Benny Gantz will be defense minister. Avigdor Lieberman takes over the finance ministry. And Gideon Sa'ar will be justice minister. And all of the different ministries get then apportioned among all these different partners. So uh, Lapid and Gantz and Sa'ar's parties each get four ministerial positions. Naftali Bennett and Avigdor Lieberman and the Labor and Moretz parties each get three ministry positions. Uh, The Islamist Ra'am party was offered a deputy ministerial post but they haven't decided yet if they'll take it. Hmm. Most political pundits believe this new government is just too unwieldy and fragile. It's going to eventually collapse under the weight of trying to please such a broad range of constituencies. There have been already some hints of disagreement, and that's before they've even taken this official vote to vote them in. Ongoing threats from Hamas and Iran, along with continuing struggles with the Palestinians, will be vying for the new government's attention, in addition to the internal priorities of all the different parties in the coalition. So Bennett and Lapid will definitely need to hit the ground running this coming week. So what does this mean for Netanyahu? And what about the possibility of this new government collapsing? What does that speak into the whole situation? Well, in terms of Netanyahu, it means that he will be heading into the opposition, leading the opposition. And it's interesting that these new parties are trying to pass a law to limit the terms of individuals who can serve as prime minister. Basically, they're going to try and pass a law to keep Netanyahu from ever being prime minister again. Hmm. So uh, it's amazing. Now, in terms of the uh, government itself, it might last for several months. It could last longer. But at some point, the government will just simply collapse under its own weight and 
they'll head to new elections. Well, reports have surfaced that support for Israel among evangelical Christians has dropped sharply. At the same time, other evangelical leaders who have historically supported Israel are now publicly condemning the new government. What's behind these changes in attitude, Charlie, and how should we respond to the new government? Yeah, these reports are on opposite ends of the evangelical spectrum, and yet I found both of them very disturbing. Uh, In that first report, a a poll of young evangelicals between the ages of 18 and 29 showed that just over 33% sided with Israel in the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. That was down more than 50% from a poll taken just three years ago. Now, part of the problem with polls is that the way they phrase questions can skew the answer, so I'm not totally sure of its accuracy. Another problem is the complexity of this situation. You know, I wouldn't consider myself anti-Palestinian. I want people to understand there's been genuine suffering on the part of Palestinians. But I do believe Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish state in the land promised them by God. And I believe they have a right to defend their citizens. And I believe God's initial promise to Abraham is still valid. I'll bless those who bless you and those who curse you, I'll curse. Now, all of those beliefs can't fit into an either-or choice in a survey question. I do have a problem with the drop in support, though, among young evangelicals, and I think there is a drop. Part of the reason is that the news coverage is so heavily biased against Israel especially in the recent conflicts with the Palestinians and Hamas. And I believe many young evangelicals have a poor grasp of the Bible and modern history. They really don't understand either one. Now, I'm just as disturbed by these recent reports of evangelical leaders who've come out condemning the new government of Israel. In my opinion, these evangelical leaders are misdirected. God has called on his church to love and support Israel, not to get involved in their politics. God's in control. He's not up in heaven wondering what's happening. Satan loves it when Christians get sidetracked from their main God-given task. Jesus told us to love God first, love our neighbors as ourselves, and his great commission to his followers was to make disciples of all nations, not to meddle in the politics of all nations. Mm. We should respond to this new government, John, exactly the way God told us to respond to those in authority in Romans 13. We're to submit ourselves to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. And when Paul wrote that, by the way, Nero was in power. So here's the bottom line for me. I think as Christians, we should not get sidetracked. Support Israel's right to exist as a nation and pray for them. Then demonstrate love to both Israelis and to Palestinians, to Jews and to Arabs. Continue to share the good news about Jesus with both. And then let God work out the political details. Current events from the Middle East, that's segment one here on The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, acknowledging that the Bible is full of geographical puzzles. Where did the Red Sea split? Where were Sodom and Gomorrah located? Well, a new book by Professor Yoel Elitzer might just provide some answers. And Charlie, what makes his book so unique? You know, John, this work fascinates me. I already downloaded a copy onto my iPad and started reading it. And I hope to finish it during my trip to Israel. The book's title is this, Places in the Parashah, Biblical Geography and Its Meaning. Now, that doesn't sound like a real page turner, does it? (laughs) Uh, But but for those who know the Bible, his approach is fascinating. And by the way, the word parashah refers to the weekly Torah portion used in synagogue worship. Now, I started reading the book because I wanted to see how he approached the Hebrew scriptures. And I found his approach to the text quite solid. He looks for clues throughout the Old Testament to help identify locations, sometimes finding answers in rather obscure passages. And I'll give just one example. Uh, There was a debate today about whether Sodom and Gomorrah were at the northern end of the Dead Sea or at the southern end of the Dead Sea. 
Well, he believes they were located in the southern end of the Dead Sea, and I do as well for some of the same reasons he gives, but he pointed out a passage I had totally overlooked. In Ezekiel 16, God confronts Jerusalem for her unfaithfulness by sharing an allegorical story about Jerusalem and her so-called sisters, Samaria and Sodom. And he notes that in verse 46, Ezekiel writes, Your older sister was Samaria, who lived to the north of you with her daughters, and your younger sister, who lived to the south of you with her daughters, was Sodom. And the professor pointed out that Samaria was geographically north of Jerusalem, but the northern tip of the Dead Sea is due east of Jerusalem. If Sodom and Gomorrah were there, it doesn't fit. But if Sodom and Gomorrah are located south of Jerusalem, as the text says, well, that would put it near the southern end of the Dead Sea. And that's just one example of the kind of attention to geographical detail he provides. So I'm really excited about reading this book. Interesting. Well, an Israeli startup company just received funds to begin a clinical trial of a drug to treat blood cancers. Tell us about this company from Amazing Israel and its new approach to treating cancer. Yeah, the startup company is called CAR. It's K-A-H-R. And they're beginning this study actually at MD Anderson Hospital in Houston to test the drug on blood cancers. They already have a clinical trial underway testing the drug's effectiveness on solid tumors. Many might not know that cancer cells use camouflage to hide from the body's own immune system. In their own words, the company is developing, quote, an immunorecruitment cancer drug that activates the body's immune response by converting cancer camouflage into beacons for the immune system to attack. Part of the drug's activity prevents cancer cells from sending out don't-eat-me signals to the body's defenses, Hmm. while another part causes the body's own T-cells to activate and proliferate, causing them to hunt down the cancer cells. Hopefully, this new approach from Amazing Israel will provide oncologists with still another weapon in their arsenal to fight these dreaded diseases. And that's a look at current events from Israel. Charlie, I'm curious about Miriam from Migdal. Why is this a significant issue for us? Well, most people don't know who Miriam is. Well, they do, but they just didn't know that was her name. And they don't know where Migdal is. And I think they'll be surprised when they put the two together. That's all coming up ahead on The Land and the Book. But first, a conversation about Joshua, as you've never known him before. Joshua up close. That's where we're headed on the very next segment here on The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Stay with us. He's one of those names that towers above the rest. Courageous, faithful, godly. We're talking about Joshua, successor to Moses. How well do you really know Joshua the man? And how well do you know the Old Testament book that bears his name? Well, that's our focus coming up. I'm John Gager saying welcome back to the land and the book. Before we head off to the Battle of Jericho and other great Joshua moments, Let's take a moment for ourselves to learn how we can better reflect Messiah to our Jewish friends, co-workers, and neighbors. You know, as you look for ways to reach out and share Yeshua with your Jewish friends, the Old Testament can be a good friend. And uh, Dr. Michael Rydelnik has some insights. Where might we find Messiah in the Old Testament? I think that one of the places that I would start is one of the most disputed passages because it talks about the birth of Messiah in Isaiah 7:14. It says, uh, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And it is highly disputed. People say it just means young woman, it doesn't mean virgin. Well, you look up every usage in the whole Hebrew Bible of that word Alma, 
it's always used of a fair maiden who is not engaged in any kind of uh, sexual activity. She is always a virgin. And then it says, he shall be called Emmanuel. He will be God with us. And, you know, it's not a big sign for a young woman, a maiden, to have a baby. But it says the Alma, the virgin, but it actually says the pregnant virgin will bear a son. Now that's a sign. Mm. And, uh, you know, to defend that interpretation, I would really recommend the Moody Handbook. There's an extended article that I actually wrote about Isaiah 714. It would be very helpful. Michael Rydelnik of the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy joining us today on The Land and the Book. David Firth is tutor in Old Testament at Trinity College, Bristol, England. He studied in Sydney, Australia, spent seven years working with the Australian Baptist Missionary Society in Zimbabwe and South Africa. Following a twisting path, he eventually came back to New England. He and his wife, Lynn, have three adult children, all of whom now live and work in or near London. Dr. Firth has also written the Lexham academic commentary, Joshua. Let's say hello to Dr. David Firth. Where are we calling you today, David? Uh, I'm in Bristol, John. How how are things in Chicago? Well, we're doing just great and better now that we've connected with you. Uh, You've written that readers of Joshua encounter the theme of faithfulness and obedience almost immediately. So important is the theme of obedience to God's Word that it is given prominence at each major section of the book. What should that say to us who live in permissive times, would you say? In in the book of Joshua, Joshua from the outset is told that he's to meditate on this book of the Torah, this book of the law. And Joshua has to work out how God's word is going to be applied in his life. And the important thing for Joshua is not that God's word says everything is do this, do that. Rather, God's word shapes what his faithfulness is going to be. And then he's going to have to work out what that means as he faces new challenges. So what do you do when someone like Rahab, who sounds like the sort of Canaanite you think you're meant to destroy, turns out to love the Lord better than many of your own people? Hmm. Or some people from Gibeon come and say, actually, we're not so against you. And so Joshua is, is working through and saying, well, how does being faithful How does knowing scripture help me to work out what to do in new situations? And I think this is where Joshua is really important for us to think about today. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly everything that we do, but it shapes who we are before God. And it helps us to work out how faith in Christ guides us to to live in relationship with the world around us. Let's talk about Joshua the man Uh, What do you see as Joshua's greatest strength? And if I may, what was his greatest weakness? I think Joshua's greatest strength was his ability to continue to trust God, even when he didn't yet have the, um, the evidence that would necessarily prove that he was getting everything. So he trusted God even before uh, we find in the book of Joshua when he was with Caleb, one of the two spies who said, we can believe God's promises. He trusted God that walking around Jericho for seven days Mm -hmm. was a perfectly reasonable strategy for capturing a city, though I'm pretty confident that um, most of them would have thought that that wasn't the most obvious way of doing that. (laughs) So Joshua's greatest strength, uh, I think, was his ability to trust God, and when God had promised him something, that he was able to uh, follow that through. His weakness Uh, in a sense, is the problem that invariably faces anybody who follows a really important figure who's gone before them. 
how do you live in terms of your own vocation whilst knowing that the person who was here before you is the one that everyone remembers. So, you know, everybody remembers Moses and uh, Joshua has to come to terms with what it is to know that Moses was unique. And yet by the end of the book, we discover that uh, the title that Moses has quite frequently, the servant of the Lord, is given to Joshua at his death. Mm. At his death, Joshua has understood the limitations of his own ministry relative to that of, of Moses. So he has it's a strength and a weakness at the same time. Joshua, face-to-face. That's our conversation today with Dr. David Firth. He spent seven years working with the Australian Baptist Missionary Society in Zimbabwe and South Africa. Following a twisting path, he eventually came back to England, where he serves today at Trinity College in Bristol. Uh, I love the details that you painted in the story of Rahab and the spies. Uh, You say, she showed great fidelity to the spies, taking the risk that the officers would search her house and would find them, or that her actions on her behalf would lead to her arrest and probable execution. It should be noted that at this point, she has not received any promises from the spies, so she's not acting on the basis of a reward. Instead, for reasons we only discover in the subsequent verses, she committed herself to Israel. That's powerful stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the uh, the story of Rahab is just incredibly important for us to read and to understand, because I think a lot of people, and certainly in, in terms of um, popular discourse, think about Israel's entry into the land and the Canaanites as simply nonstop destruction. And Rahab immediately gives a human face to a Canaanite and says, well, the problem is not people, the problem is practice. And Rahab shows that you can be faithful to God and that you can put faithfulness to God before all else, even if you look like the sort of person we think shouldn't be a part of it. And, and Rahab is, is such an exciting story because yeah. if you had asked anyone, you know, what's the sort of Canaanite um, that Israel should destroy, you would think a Canaanite woman prostitute is the one that you would do that. But she goes above and beyond. And in fact, her confession of faith is the clearest confession of faith that anyone makes in the whole of the book of Joshua. She knows what the Lord is doing, and she wants to commit herself to that, even though at that stage she doesn't know that she can even be a part of it. Hmm. You know, uh, by contrast to the story of Rahab and the fall of Jericho, there are the ruins of Jericho, which... Maybe chalk it up to my own lack of imagination. I, I always wish there was something more to see. Your thoughts? Um, well, I think it would be lovely, of course, if we could go and just see the ruins and go, there it was. <laughs> but maybe that's not how faith works. Yeah. I think the other thing, though, is that uh, Jericho was actually a relatively small site. I think in, especially, you know, what I've seen in Sunday school materials and so on, Jericho looks like a huge medieval fortress. Um, but the Jericho that Israel faced was a relatively small site. Um, so it's unlikely to have left significant ruins, although we do know and have found evidence of a very large fortified central house, which would have been uh, presumably the king's property, yeah. um, although it's difficult to see that beyond the archaeological reports. But the, the important thing for Jericho, for Israel, is that they have never encountered a city that's locked up before. And they have to encounter this in a way that 
no one would think about capturing a locked up city, I think. Today on The Land and the Book, we're face to face with the Old Testament character Joshua. Helping us get to know him better is Dr. David Firth, who's written the Lexham commentary, Joshua. In chapter 8, we come to the sad story of Achan's sin at Ai, or as modern scholars are uh, preferring to call it, I. Here, Achan disobeyed God and snuck off with some of the plunder. He is subsequently discovered by Joshua and stoned to death, not just him, but his entire family. Now, Dr. Firth, this is jarring to modern readers. Any insights here? Yes, I, I think uh, the Achan story is actually incredibly important. And Achan and uh, Rahab set up for us as two foundational characters through which we're going to read everything else that happens within the book of Joshua. And Achan looks to be the sort of person who ought to be a, a model Israelite. He's got the long um, genealogy. He comes from an important family. He's got all the opportunities that go with being an Israelite of the Israelites, whereas Rahab was, if you like, a Canaanite of the Canaanites. And yet he is presented as the contrast to Rahab. Uh, he is the one who chooses not to trust God. He is the one who decides that his interests are served by serving himself, mm -hmm. not by trusting in God and following God's instructions. And so Achan's story is jarring, and it's intended to be jarring. Yeah. And anyone who comes through that story of events at, uh, at AI, I say AI, not I, um, <laughs> and doesn't feel uncomfortable, has missed the point. We're meant to be uncomfortable because we don't want that to be us. We don't want that to happen within our communities. And yeah. yet it, it is true that we see people who have all the opportunities of faith and who choose to cast it away. Let's broaden the scope out a bit and look at Joshua and the problem of violence. There are some graphic scenes in the book, things that don't square with our modern understanding of justice and decency even. Again, you know, the story of Ai, uh, it isn't just Achan who pays for his sin by being stoned, it's his wife, it's his children. You know, and we have other other scenes. How do we answer the critics here, Dr. Firth? Uh, I'm often involved in discussion where people are struggling with precisely these questions. I, I think when we look at the book of Joshua, it's important to note that Rahab's faith is shared by her household. So it's not only Rahab who's saved, it's her household who was saved with her. And fundamental to Israel's understanding is that decisions happen within households. They don't just happen when an individual acts. And so when Achan sins, he is the head of the household, but he couldn't have buried those various items in the family tent without others knowing that something has been buried in the family tent. So he is the head of that family and is singled out, but he's part of an intergenerational structure of resistance against God. So it's important to notice that Rahab's family is saved, Achan's family is not. When we look at some of the wider issues of uh, justice and violence, which of course is the big issue that people wrestle with, I think it's important to realize that the book of Joshua expresses itself in terminology which is very idiomatic of its time and that when we translate those words without realizing the idiom, then I think we often misunderstand what's happening. So, um, for example, in chapter 10, at one point in chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, it talks about how Joshua completely destroyed everyone. There was no survivor. 
And then halfway through the sentence, it then talks about a couple of hundred people who, who survived. And we might look at that and go, well, were they confused? And I think, well, no, this is simply evidence of the fact that the book of Joshua expresses itself in an idiom where victory is expressed in very absolute terms. Let me give an analogy from sports. Imagine that uh, the, uh, the Bears have just beaten the Cowboys 49-3, and you're sitting on the, ra- on the uh, railway station at the train in Chicago, and you- there's some Bears fans talking, and they're going to say, we destroyed the Cowboys this weekend. And that's the language. Now, of course, if someone comes in uh, 3,000 years' time and finds newspaper journals that reports that say, uh, Bears destroy Cowboys, um, they might look at that and think, well, hang on a second, was this some violent, was this sports event some incredibly violent thing, assuming that they know that we're talking about football or not? Or would they realize that there's an idiom here that says a comprehensive victory is described in those terms? When we look at the book of Joshua carefully, what we find is every time this type of language occurs, that the context makes clear But what it means is much the same as when uh, sports fans talk about having destroyed uh, an opposing team by which they still allow that that opposing team can turn up the next week and play somebody else. Well, there is so much more to look at in this book of Joshua. You do such a great job, Dr. Firth. We'd like to have you back. Would you come back and and dig further with us into the book of Joshua? Uh, I'm, I'm sure we can do that at some stage, Sean, yeah. All right. We'll look forward to that conversation. Thanks for joining us today. And up next on The Land of the Book, Charlie Dyer returns to the seat with a a great look at your questions here on The Land and the Book. I love it. You love it. Most listeners love it. It's our section here called Questions and Answers. Welcome back to the land and the book. I'm John Geiger. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, as always, is armed with a stack of Bible questions that have come into us via email. And if you've got a question for Charlie, stick around. I'll share that email address later on in this segment. Charlie, you ready for uh, today's questions? Oh, I am, John. I always love this part. All right. This first one is from Paul, who says, I listen to Moody Radio, Indiana. Truly enjoy your program. And by listening online, I never miss a program. All right. That's great. He takes us to the first chapter of Numbers, where all of the tribal counts end in an even hundred. He says, it seems strange to me that none end with a number like 432. It appears the numbers are always rounded off. Do you have an explanation? Well, I do. I I take the numbers literally, but it is possible that as they counted the different men for each tribe, they rounded up or down to the nearest larger unit. And yet, even as I say that, I do notice that even in the first census, the numbers don't all end in an even hundred. Uh, the total for the tribe of Gad was 45,650. And then later, when they give the numbers for the different Levite clans, uh, there were 2,750 for the Kohathites and 2,630 for the Gershonites. Uh, so, yeah, you put it all together, I think it's at least possible the totals were rounded to the nearest 10 or, in some cases, perhaps even to the nearest 100. But the fact that these lists have numbers like 45,650 or 2,630 suggests the numbers weren't just broad approximations. And the fact that the specific amount of silver collected for the tabernacle from those who were part of this first census corresponds exactly to the 603,550 people each paying that half-shekel tax. It's a tiny detail, but it suggests to me the numbers were intended to reflect reality. 
John wants to know, what does the Bible say about cremation? My parents, wife, and myself are considering cremation, but only if it is not wrong in the eyes of God. Please help us with this very important decision, and God bless you and your ministry. Well, and I start this way. The Bible does not directly address the rightness or the wrongness of cremation. There's no specific prohibition against it. There's no command supporting it. And so in that case, you know, what principles can we find? And I, I think there are two. First, I do think we need to explore the motive behind someone wanting to be cremated. Is is the decision being made for financial reasons? You know, trying to avoid the excessively high cost of funerals, which really is a business that often preys on the grief of loved ones. Or is the decision being based on non-Christian religious beliefs like Hinduism or some Eastern belief that seeks to release the spirit of the deceased from the material body? You know, if someone wants to be cremated because they want to be good stewards of their finances, even in death, well, that can be displaying a motive that aligns with the Bible. If someone wants to be cremated because of a false Eastern religious understanding of the material body, well, that's not taught in the Bible. It doesn't align with the Bible. And then second, I believe we need to remember that ultimately God will bring about a resurrection of the body, whether it's buried or cremated. God can resurrect a body that's been incinerated in a fire, drowned at sea, or totally decomposed in the ground. Now, we don't understand how he's going to reconstitute those molecules, but the Bible says all humans will someday be resurrected. Uh, So uh, the bottom line for me is this. I don't see anything in the Bible that says God prohibits cremation, even though the normal method of handling the remains of those who died during Bible times was burial. You're listening to The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, intrigued, as always, with your questions. And uh, you can get yours to Charlie at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Vernon says, I was reading today in the Word, and the Bible verses were Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Question about verse 28. Do we have any indication in Scripture what the blessing was that God gave to humanity? And that's the verse where God blesses humanity and says to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Now, I believe that blessing itself relates to the fruitfulness and productivity that he's describing there. In verse 22, God also blessed the creatures of the sea and the air. And then what follows is that blessing. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters of the sea and let the birds increase on the earth. Uh, In verse 28, God repeats much of that same expression as he blesses humans. Uh, In fact, I see the same thing following the flood. In Genesis 9, God repeats the same blessing to Noah and his sons. In contrast to the rest of the world that had just perished, God blessed Noah and his children, and by extension the animals exiting the ark with them, by announcing he would again enable them to be fruitful and productive. And so, in, in effect, I think that the being productive and fruitful is the blessing that God gave. Okay, another question along these lines. Why were Adam and Eve told to replenish the earth, according to the King James Version of the Bible? Could this simply be translated, fill the earth? Yeah, this is a case where the King James Version, which I love, uh, just, uh, I think, used a, a probably an improper translation. Uh, the key word there in the Hebrew can have the idea of fill up or be full. And that's why in most modern translations simply translate it as fill. Uh, the earth wasn't yet populated with people or animals, and the sea and the sky weren't yet populated with fish or birds. So God's command, along with his promised blessing, was for each of these created beings to multiply to the point where they would fully inhabit a creation that, you know, at that very moment was pristine but empty. Following the flood, God issued the same command to Noah and his children. And so all that to say that the best translation of the Hebrew word in those passages is fill rather than replenish. Steve writes us from Moscow. 
Idaho, that is. He says, I look forward to the land of the book every week on KMBI. He takes us to 1 Samuel 19, verse 23, where the Spirit of God comes upon Saul, even though he is persistently trying to kill David. God protects David through this, and it seems to me that God is incredibly over-the-top gracious to Saul to allow his spirit to come upon him. Why would God be so merciful to Saul, who has an unrepentant and murderous heart? Is this an example for us to follow towards those who want to murder us, or is it a warning for us to not be like Saul and guard our hearts, realizing that jealousy and envy can lead to great wickedness? Yeah, follow me on this answer. It's going to be a little bit complex, but the key for me is trying to discern why God sent his spirit on Saul at this time. Uh, In Old Testament times, God sent his spirit to endow individuals with special abilities, you know, constructing the tabernacle, uh, serving as a judge in the book of Judges, uh, sharing prophetic insight from God himself, uh, ruling righteously and justly. Uh, That indwelling was temporary, and God could remove his spirit from such individuals. You know, God placed his spirit on Saul, But then later it says his spirit departed from Saul. God sent his spirit on David, and yet after his sin with Bathsheba, David pleaded with God, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, none of these enabling actions of the spirit match what's happening in the chapter that you're asking about. Instead, I believe we see what God's doing here is sending his spirit on Saul. Uh, It's definitely not a sign of blessing, favor. It's not gracious provision for Saul. Saul had already been rejected, placed under God's judgment for his disobedience. And Saul's anger against David, who was now God's anointed, continued unabated, in fact, in the very next chapter, in chapter 20. So some of the details in chapter 19 uh, do provide us, though, with a few clues as to what's happening. In verses 23 and 24 of the chapter, the writer of 1 Samuel uses the phrase, even he, three times to single out Saul. Now, it doesn't show up well in our English translations, but it's inserted in the Hebrew to draw attention to Saul in a way that suggests uh, to the readers that this was a surprising development that was not characteristic of Saul. Hmm. Uh, In verse 23, the spirit came even upon him. While in verse 24, even he stripped off his clothes and even he prophesied. Hmm. It was so out of character for Saul that it created something of a proverb in his day. You know, Saul among the prophets. Uh, So what was God doing in these events? I would think that the purpose was to stop Saul from attacking David and to show Saul and others that God was still the one who was in control. The picture of God forcing Saul to strip off his royal robes and lay on the ground for a day and a night presented the image of a king being publicly humbled and humiliated by the Spirit of God. And as a result, I don't see God's actions being merciful to Saul, but rather being protective of David. Another reason I say that's because of the three groups of soldiers who were also sent to capture David. Uh, there in verses 20 to 21, the Spirit also came on them, not to bless them, but to protect David. So uh, the example I see in all this is that God will watch over his followers. He'll use means that might even seem strange or unusual to protect them. But ultimately, Those who seek to oppose God and harm his servants will be humbled, while God's true followers will be protected and exalted. Sometimes it'll happen in this life, while other times it might not be fully revealed till the life to come, but we can remain confident that no earthly king can defeat the King of Kings or the Holy Spirit. One last question from Acts chapter 3, verse 1. It mentions one afternoon Peter and John went to the temple for the three o'clock prayer. My question, did God command a three o'clock sacrifice? I've got a footnote that talks about uh, morning sacrifices. Do you think this was more ritualistic than obedience to God? 
Uh, I think it really was obedience to God. In Exodus 29, God gave Aaron instructions for offering daily sacrifices. One was to be in the morning, and the second was at twilight, and literally it's between the two evenings. Now, eventually in Judaism, they standardized that time as 3 p.m. So since it was established by God, I don't see following it as being ritualistic. In fact, uh, within the New Testament in Luke 1, Zechariah was offering the incense inside the temple. And Luke adds one detail. While they were offering the incense in the temple, all the assembled worshipers were outside praying as that incense was being offered. Great questions, great answers. Thank you so much, Charlie. Looking forward to your devotional. It's next on The Land and the Book. You know, as a lover of mystery stories, there's nothing more satisfying than when a grand truth is finally revealed, uh, a personality that's been somewhat masked uh, is come to be known. And I think that's the journey we're about to take next on The Land and the Book. Charlie, your devotional is something of a mystery revealed, yes? It is. Uh, in fact, I, I don't even give away too much early on, but uh, uh, it's been a long, hard journey today on our tour, and I think you're going to be uh, pleasantly surprised by the way it ends. All right. We can tell you we're headed to Luke chapter 8. If you have a Bible handy, why not uh, open it there and follow along with us? Before we get there, though, let's take a moment and listen to this testimony from somebody who's traveled to the Holy Land and wanted to share this with us. I'm Doris Bailey from Vail, Colorado, and I am so privileged to have been here. I was in Israel probably 43, 44 years ago, and my goodness, it's the traffic was bad then. You ought to see it now, and it's worth every traffic jam you'll ever be in. I think that being with a group from the church is a new experience for me, and I have been overwhelmed with the people in this group. There just hasn't been a complainer. There hasn't been a problem. I think that Christians being with Christians has just been a profound experience for me on this trip. And um, then thinking about the people of the time of Jesus, I just cannot fathom and understand and comprehend that I can now see where Jesus walked. And I have been staggered by the experience. And thanks to everyone that was with me because you shared your lives with me and I I love every one of them. Attention, mystery lovers. This segment is for you. Charlie, I'm looking forward to what you have to share with us from Luke chapter 8. Thanks, John. Well, it's been an action-packed first day on this tour of Israel. I know you're anxious to get to the hotel and rest, but there's one stop left before we head to the hotel. It's the Jewish village of Migdal, nestled at the base of Mount Arbel, the the spot we were just standing. Until recent archaeological discoveries brought new interest to Migdal, its greatest claim to fame was a woman named after Moses' sister. This woman from the time of Jesus was named Miriam of Migdal. But you probably know her best from the way her name is written in the New Testament. Mary Magdalene. Did you ever wonder why there were so many women named Mary in the New Testament, even though no women are named Mary in the Old Testament? Well, actually, I just asked a trick question. The Hebrew name Miriam was transliterated into Greek as Mariam, and that was translated into English as Mary. The 13 times Miriam appears in the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, listed her name as Mariam. 
Anyone named Mary in the New Testament was being named after Moses' sister. That's why there are at least six different women in the New Testament named Mary, including Jesus' mother, Mary the sister of Martha who lived in Bethany, and Mary Magdalene. If Mary Magdalene's actual name was Miriam, the name of her hometown was Migdal or Magdala. Migdal is the Hebrew word for tower. In the Babylonian Talmud, the town was known as Magdala Nunaya, the tower of the fish. The town, as archaeologists have now discovered, was a center for fish processing. Until just a few years ago, few tourists stopped at Magdala because there was almost nothing to see. But that all changed when the town synagogue from the time of Jesus was uncovered. As we walk through Magdala, I'm fairly confident you will come away with two distinct impressions. The first is how small the synagogue really was. We somehow envision Jesus preaching in arena-sized synagogues packed to the rafters with thousands of worshipers. But a hundred individuals sitting side by side in this small space would have filled the building to overflowing, bringing down the wrath of the local fire marshal had such a post been around at that time. Other synagogues, like the one in Capernaum, were larger, but this building represents a typical village synagogue in the time of Jesus. You know, it's really a good reminder not to despise small congregations. Jesus certainly didn't. But the second impression is that this was the actual hometown of Mary Magdalene, Miriam from Migdal or Magdala. She could have lived in one of the houses that's been uncovered. As a young girl, she might have helped process the fish that were salted, packed, and shipped from this place. She walked along the same streets you can walk today. But how much do you really know about Mary Magdalene? If you're like most people, the answer is probably not much. In fact, what most people think they know about Mary Magdalene is flat out wrong. Some believe she was a prostitute, confusing her with the unnamed woman who anointed Jesus' feet in Luke 7. But Luke doesn't tell us the name of that woman. In fact, it's the very next chapter where Luke introduces Mary Magdalene for the very first time. So Mary wasn't that prostitute. Others have tried to say Mary Magdalene was actually Jesus' wife. This false belief began about a century after the time of Jesus with the rise of a false teaching called Gnosticism and the proliferation of false gospel accounts that tried to fill in the gaps in the life of Jesus. But this belief has no basis in historical reality whatsoever. So who was Mary Magdalene? Miriam from the town of Migdal. Well, leave it to Luke, the physician, to help give us that information. In Luke 8, he describes the itinerant ministry of Jesus. He says that Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Luke then describes the entourage who were traveling with Jesus. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, did you catch the two key facts about Mary Magdalene? She had experienced Jesus' miraculous power in her life as he cast out seven demons that had plagued her. We don't know any other details, but in reading the gospel accounts of demon possession, We know that those under such control were tormented physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Mary Magdalene had been transformed through Jesus' healing ministry. Leave it to Dr. Luke to point out that detail for us.
Uh, The second key fact about Mary is that she must have been a woman of some financial means. Luke includes her by name with two others, including the wife of the manager of Herod's household, and says these women were helping support Jesus and the disciples out of their own means. We're not told how Mary gained her wealth, but we're told that she freely used it to help support Jesus and the disciples. Everything else we know about Mary comes from the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Mary is mentioned 12 times in the Gospels, and 11 of those occur in that one three-day period. Matthew says she was one of the group of women who had followed Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem to care for his needs, and who stood watching from a distance as Jesus suffered and died on the cross. She was also one of the two women who watched as Joseph of Arimathea laid Jesus in the tomb and rolled the stone across the opening. And on Easter Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene was one of the women who brought spices to anoint Jesus' body. She actually saw Jesus, and she's the one who went to tell the disciples that she had seen the risen Lord. Miriam, from this little town of Migdal, played a central role in the unfolding of those dramatic events. It's only a short walk from the synagogue of Magdala down to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. By the shore, the Catholics have built a spiritual center called Ducanaltum, which comes from the Latin translation of Jesus' words to Peter in Luke 5-4, where he said to take out the boat and put out, quote, into the deep. Inside's a replica of a first century boat with the Sea of Galilee in the background. But as impressive as that photo op might be, We need to go down the stairway to the lower level and visit the Encounter Chapel. The floor in that chapel is part of the original first century marketplace of Magdala, just beside the ancient port. Mary Magdalene could have walked on these very stones. And on the wall is a mural depicting the healing of the woman with the issue of blood as she reached out to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. The picture is breathtaking. Now, That event took place in Capernaum, a few miles away, but in another sense, it does seem to fit here. After all, this town was put on the biblical map by a woman, Miriam of Migdal, who also reached out and experienced the healing power of Jesus. Well, it's time to head back to the bus, but before we go, how are you doing today? Are you struggling physically, or spiritually, or emotionally? If you are, why not follow in the footsteps of Miriam of Migdal, Mary Magdalene, and reach out to Jesus today. Go to him with your cares, your sorrows, and your troubles. If you do, I'm convinced you'll discover, just like Mary Magdalene, that he has the power to meet your needs. Why not take that step today? Well, our time goes too quickly, but we want to thank you for investing some with us here at The Land and the Book, where your email is always welcome, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Thanks, Charlie. I'm John Geiger. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.